Hey, good morning, everybody. All right, good to see you guys. Feels like Oregon again, doesn't it, with all the rain? It's just like, what is happening? What is this liquid falling from the sky? It's amazing. And uh, we, we, we just did a kitchen remodel. I did it all myself. I'm really handy. Ed Dasso wasn't involved at all, or Dante. <laughs> but they told me what to do, and I did it. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. But they put in some skylights in our kitchen. So now we, like last night, we, Bethany and I were just standing under the skylights like, wow. As, it, as the rain fell, it was so cool. It's like being outside, but you don't have to be outside. Pretty awesome. That's my view of nature right there. Well, hey guys, I am so excited. We're jumping into a brand new series today called Sunday School. Somebody say Sunday School. And uh, we're talking about going back to school and really looking at the essential things of the Christian faith looking into what we believe, why we believe it, and how to live it out. And maybe you hear me talk about school and we talk about going back to the basics or going back to the essentials. And maybe what you hear me saying is, oh, that's boring or I already know this stuff. But I want you to think about the world's greatest baseball players. I won't talk a lot about baseball today, don't worry. But uh, the world's greatest baseball players, they do the exact same things as the kids playing Little League over in Springfield or Eugene today do. They hit the ball, they throw the ball, they catch the ball, hopefully, right? Uh, they run around the bases, but they do it at a much higher level. And so there's something about really getting deep into the fundamental things, getting deep into the essentials where the true maturity and the true value is uh, in our practice of our faith. Uh, and I'll talk about that more in a second. But before we do that, we're going to talk about school a little bit and going back to school. And uh, we're going to get a little deep today. So I thought before that, let's go a little light and uh, uh, give you some conversations that were overheard about school. So this is a, a daughter. She says to her mom, Mom, I think we need a new teacher. And the mom said, why is that? And the daughter said, well, our teacher doesn't know anything. She keeps asking us for the answers. <laughs> the summer holiday was over, and young Jack returned to school. Only two days later, his teacher phoned his mother to tell her that Jack was misbehaving. Wait a minute, the mother said. I had Jack with me for six weeks, and I never called you once when he misbehaved. <laughs> How many of you parents relate to that right now? You're like, okay, you only had him for three days, and uh, yeah, I had him all, all of COVID. Okay, uh, except for us homeschool families, because we just are still in the same mess we were in before, you know. We're just still, my kids are still at home, you know. Uh, Nathan comes home from his first day at school. Mother asks, what did you learn today? He replies, well, not enough, because I have to go back tomorrow. It reminds me of uh, Penny. One time, uh, Penny, she takes piano lessons, and she had her very first piano lesson, one, okay? She comes into my office. She's really excited. She opens the door. Dad, Dad! I'm like, yeah, what's up? She goes, I learned how to play the piano. I was like, awesome. That was, she thought she had it because she had her piano lesson, right? Done, right? That was it. Had my piano lesson. Now I play the piano. How many of you wish it was that easy, right? I was like, baby, there's some more ahead of you. Uh, Mom asked her son, how did you find school today? Son, I simply hopped off the bus and there it was. <laughs> That's how he found it. When dad came home, he was astonished to see Vic sitting on a horse, riding something. What on earth are you doing there? He asked. Well, the teacher told us to write an essay on our favorite animal, answered Vic. That's why I'm here and that's why Sarah is sitting in the goldfish bowl. <laughs> That's a courtesy laugh. All right. I was actually a bigger laugh than I got in the car when I told my kids that joke. I told my kids that joke and they were dead silent. And then my daughter Penny, who's six and definitely didn't get it, gave me like a ha 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 ha. 
<laughs> really cut me to the heart. Okay, last one, and then the dad jokes are over, all right? All right, until next week. Teacher, Brett, your essay on my dog is exactly the same as your sister's. Did you copy her? Brett, no, miss, it's the same dog. Okay. <laughs> Be here all week, folks. I think the people like the jokes even more that we're watching online. They really came through, I believe it. So we're talking about going back to school. And in all seriousness, as we talk about this idea of Sunday school, how many of you maybe grew up in church and actually went to Sunday school, right, at some point in your past? Okay. You're the oversaved, churchified people. If you didn't, that's totally fine. We're taking you to school right now. And this is going to be really exciting. And, and I think uh, really helpful um, for, for a couple of different reasons. Number one, helpful to each of us as we follow Jesus um, for ourselves. But also it's very timely and essential for the church, the big C church, the church of uh, uh, the world and specifically the church in the Western world in our time because looking at pu the purity and the truth of right doctrine and right theology and right belief is absolutely timely and essential. As we look into the Christian world, uh, specifically in the West, I don't really speak for, you know, well, I don't speak for the whole West, but speaking just in our context of living in the Western world, what I see that the great uh, issues of our age are uh, schisms in the area of theology. They are, they are schisms, they are divides in the area of right belief and right practice. If you want to use the theological terms, it's orthodoxy, which stands for right belief, and orthopraxy, which stands for right practice. And what we see in our day and age is a great divide occurring, not on the issue of, you know, do we like a certain style of music, not on the issue of what style of church do we have, but actually on the issues of what we believe and why. The schisms that are taking place in this day and age have to do with who is Jesus, what does it actually mean to be a Christian, uh, these, these deep questions that are really connected to right doctrine and right theology. And so I believe that in our day and age, it's so vital that as we leave being the majority culture, uh, it, it, let's say 50 years ago, even if people were just nominally Christian, it was at least the majority culture. There was a consensus in the areas of ethics and values and morals. And, and as that outplayed into all levels and areas of society, there was a consensus rooted in a Judeo-Christian worldview. That's a lot of words, okay? Just hang with me here for a second. But there was a consensus based on the majority culture essentially being uh, roughly considered Christian. That's why people would use statements like, this is a Christian nation, or we, you know, we need prayer in school, and we need to have on God we trust on our money. And even now there's sort of a loss of that, and there's actually a conflict sort of taking place. And we can get really mad and bitter and curmudgeonly and start waving our fists you know, at, at the world. Or we can understand that there's been a shift in our nation, which I actually think is good in some ways because the, 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 the lines of demarcation are being drawn very clearly between light and darkness. But if Christians don't understand what it actually means to be a Christian and what does that belief entail and how should we then live that out in our day and age faithfully to Jesus, if we don't understand what we actually believe and why we believe it, then we're going to have a lot of trouble in the area of living out our faith, okay? And we're not the majority culture any longer. There is no longer a consensus. If you were to take a poll, even in this room today, if I were to say, what are your beliefs in the area of sexuality? We would get a, a, a plethora of answers. 
Uh, some, some of you in this room, just statistically based, would have very different views than others on the, the rightness or wrongness of various sexual practices or sexual orientations or even the idea that there are different genders or things like that. There would be this whole thing. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole today, but there, that would be the case. If we were to talk about politics, I, I know many, many of you, and I know many of you absolutely disagree 100% on politics right? We have people in here that are very liberal, people that are very conservative, back and forth. Obviously, we're united in Jesus. That's not what we're talking about today's politics. What I simply want to point out is that there is no longer a consensus in culture along a particular, uh, any particular line. Therefore, it's vital for us in this day and age, if we're going to faithfully follow Jesus, to know that which is essential, that which is secondary and tertiary. Does that make sense? Okay. Just say yes, even if it doesn't. Okay. Yes, Pastor Jake. Just amazing. Wow. Keep going. All right. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. This is Paul speaking to his spiritual son, Timothy. He tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. It is your responsibility as a disciple of Jesus to correctly handle the word of truth. More damage is done by Christians repeating little things they saw on Instagram or Twitter that are actually incorrect or not doctrinally pure or truth or reflective of, of uh, real Christian uh, truth or even the Bible itself. More damage is done by well-meaning people who don't correctly handle the word of truth than people who are outright doing evil. Do you hear what I'm saying? What has to happen in this day and age is for Christians to actually correctly handle the word of truth. In other words, that we, 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 are, we are mirroring what God is speaking in the scripture and we're accurately speaking that to those around us rather than being a distortion of it because we simply do not understand. Ignorance causes more trouble in the world oftentimes than somebody who's outright trying to do the wrong thing. Because someone who's outright trying to do the wrong thing, it's often very clear that that's what they're doing. But ignorant people oftentimes muck things up on accident, and it's worse than if they were just doing the wrong thing and everybody knew it, okay? I'll just leave that out there. You can think about that later today. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Again, as disciples of Jesus, it is our calling to be able to explain what we believe and why when someone asks. Now, one of the things that has happened to the detriment of the church in the Western world is the professionalization of clergy, where we look at people like myself, who are paid as pastors, right, to speak messages and all of that, and we think, oh, that person, or Bethany and Jake, or the elders, or the leaders of the church, they're the ones that have to have all these answers, and we sort of come and support on Sunday, and there's a lot of just uh, uh, spectators rather than participators but actually, that's not the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is that the fivefold ministry gifts, the pastors, prophets, apostles, evangelists, and teachers, would actually be equipping the saints, which is you. Raise your hand if you are a you. Okay, if you exist and you're breathing today, raise your hand. Okay, that's you. You're the saints. You are to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. So when Peter, in 1 Peter, says this, he's not saying it's, it's some professional pastor's job to be able to explain what Christianity is, why it's true, and how to live it. He's saying it's your job. Somebody say, my job. Okay, so what we're talking about in Sunday school is giving, equipping all of us so that we can actually answer this question, what is it that I believe, why do I believe it, and how do I live it out? Those are the questions, what we believe, 
why we believe it and how to live it out. Because it's not enough just to know what we believe, pure head knowledge, pure uh, intellect, and it's not even enough to know why it's truth. There is this other piece, which is how we can live it out faithfully in the midst of our culture, okay? So let's jump into our text for today. We're going to look into Isaiah chapter 59. And this is an, an absolutely rich passage of scripture. I simply cannot do it full justice in the next 25 minutes that I have to speak today. Um, I want to encourage you to, to go in and study this out and research this. But just to give you some brief context of Isaiah chapter 59, it's thought that this, this prophecy or this passage was written to the post-exile community of Israel. And I find many polemics uh, or many uh, parallels rather to our day and age. This, this is a time in history where people were very uh, upset and crying out for justice. When you look at our culture today, there is a great heart cry for justice. Now, when I talk about justice, I want you to remove sort of the political or social or cultural overlay of justice that you might be hearing like social justice issues in our day and age, though there is uh, application there. But, uh, but what the real cry is that things that are meant to be a certain way would actually be that way, that right is right, wrong is wrong, and that I would receive my, my fair reward for the good things that I've done and, I, and there would be a, a corresponding punishment for the bad things that are done. When we look at our culture around us, the great issue of our day is this cry for justice. And it's very much the same in this passage here in Isaiah. But what we will see in this passage is that though the cry is for justice, God has a particular response to that cry that goes directly against what we say in our day and age and even what people did in this time, okay? So let's look at Isaiah 59 together. In verse one, the prophet Isaiah writes this, listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. When people cry out for justice, oftentimes when it comes to God, the first thing that they're crying out for is they're saying, God, where are you? Are you even listening? God, do you hear the cry to, to end the scourge of injustice, whether that be racial or economic or uh, any kind of other issue, any kind of injustice that takes place? Oftentimes we recognize that as humans because God has woven it into our heart that there is right and wrong and we cry for justice. And, and when we look around us, we see so much suffering and injustice and inequality and all these things. And we go, God, where are you? Are you even listening? And Isaiah speaks the, the word of the Lord and he says, God is not deaf. He hears you. The second thing that often comes out is if God hears us and he hears our cry for justice, then why doesn't he do something? I don't know if you saw this, but I think in the past week, the comedian Norm MacDonald uh, passed away, and he was a SNL comic or whatever, and really, really funny. Um, I may or may not, but definitely watched some of his inappropriate movies in my past. Before I was a Christian, no, I'm just kidding. No, I definitely watched them. But uh, Norm MacDonald, there, there was a, 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 a whole thing um, of him talking about his faith. He was actually a Christian, and there was a whole thing where he was being interviewed by Larry King and different people talking about his faith. And Larry King actually posed this question to Norm MacDonald. And he said, well, if there is a God, why does he let bad things happen? Why did he let Sandy Hook happen? And why did he let 9-11 happen and all this? This is a classic question. It's the question of in a world where really bad stuff happens and we recognize it as being unjust, then if God is strong and he's powerful, why doesn't he just stop all the bad things? How many of you maybe even wondered this question, okay? It's the problem of suffering. Prophet Isaiah says it's not that God's not listening. He's not deaf. And it's not that he doesn't, that he's not strong. 
And in verse 2, he tells us what the actual issue is. He says in verse 2, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Your hands are the hands of murderers and your fingers are filthy with sin. Your lips are full of lies and your mouth spews corruption. He goes on to say, and I think this is a picture of even our day and age. He says, no one cares about being fair and honest. You see, we cry for justice. How many of you have ever said it's not fair? But you don't want fairness because that would mean that the things that you did bad would come back on you. You see, real fairness means that all the bad stuff that we do, we have to answer for that too. And so God is just giving us a little bit of the the medicine that we need. He's saying, hey, it's your sins that are creating this climate of injustice. It's your sins that are creating these issues. No one cares about being fair and honest. The people's lawsuits are based on lies. They conceive evil deeds and then give birth to sin. He uses this word picture. He says they hatch deadly snakes and weave spider's webs. Whoever eats their eggs will die. Whoever cracks them will hatch a viper. In other words, you're looking for something good, you get something really bad. Their webs can't be made into clothing and nothing they do is productive. All their activity is filled with sin and violence is their trademark. As we look into our culture today, we look around and we we see violence. We see people being beaten. We see violence in our streets. We see violence in the world. We see wars. We see violence. It's our trademark. Isaiah goes on, their feet run to do evil and they rush to commit murder. They think only about sinning. Misery and destruction always follow them. And he goes on and he's describing our plight as humans apart from God. He says, they don't know where to find peace or what it means to be just and good. They map out, they've mapped out crooked roads and no one who follows them knows a moment's peace. It's fascinating to me that in the most affluent age that we've ever lived in, in the, in the safest age that has ever existed in human history, people are consumed with fear and have no peace. And the more that our culture tries to find peace along every path, what we find is it's a crooked road and there is no peace without the Prince of Peace ruling on the throne. No matter who's president, no matter how many books you read, no matter how many gurus you follow on Instagram, no matter how much self-help or self-wellness or whatever you do and how much self-care you practice, in a time in history when Literally, the majority of us here today, no, I don't, raise your hand today if you had to get up and milk cows and, and go to the farms just so you could feed your family. Anybody? That's awesome, one guy. But the majority of us don't actually have to create our own food. The majority of us don't have to go out and cut down lumber to build a house that we live in for shelter that covered us from the rain last night. We earn our income and money different ways, but we live in the most affluent time in human history. We also live in the safest time in human history. You go, well, there's a global pandemic. Yeah, but I want you to imagine living in like Ireland, north of Ireland, 800 AD. You're there, you're getting up to milk your cows and, you know, farm your thing. And all of a sudden, all these Vikings come down, you know, the road and they're, ah, yeah, you know. Uh, You'd be like, please give me a virus, right? Because the guy's coming at you with a battle ax with a big red beard and he's frothing at the mouth. You think that you're, like, we think we're so unsafe. You're not. You're actually safer today, even in the middle of the pandemic, than in any other time in human history. And yet we have no peace. We're actually terrified all the time. And we have all of these self-help resources to give you peace. Well, if you abandon your faith, and if you, you know, if you really understand it was your parents' fault, and it was your, you know, it was the teacher's fault, and it's the president's fault, and it's, 
everybody else's fault and you know, maybe you did some stuff wrong, but you need to forgive yourself and love yourself. And if you love yourself better, then you'll feel better, but you don't feel better. Nobody does. In fact, everybody feels worse. Demonstrably. In fact, if you study this out, we live in the age of anxiety at a time when things to actually be anxious about are very, very low. Even in the middle of a pandemic. As much anxiety as we might feel, if you actually think about any other time in human history, they always had more to worry about like dudes coming in with swords at any given moment, right? So when you actually look at our, our place in history, it's interesting because we're living out this prophecy. They don't know where to find peace. No matter what we do, we don't know where to find it. And we don't know what it means to be just and good. In verse 9, he says, So there is no justice among us. And we know nothing about right living. We look for light, but find only darkness. We look for bright skies, but walk in gloom. We grope like the blind along a wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. Even at brightest noontime, we stumble as though it were dark. Among the living, we are like the dead. If you are here today listening to me or online, you have the distinct privilege of being alive. Right? Can we all agree on this? You are alive. If you hear me right now, you are alive. And yet we live in a time in which most people act like they're dead. Living in fear. Living in terror. Living in anxiety. Having no peace. Not understanding, even though we live in the bright light and the sun, not understanding how to live their life. Not understanding the answers to very basic questions this is the picture that Isaiah is painting. He says, we growl like hungry bears. We mourn like mournful doves. We look for justice, but it never comes. We look for rescue, but it is far away from us. Again, he repeats why this is the case. For our sins are piled up before God and testify against us. Yes, we know what sinners we are. We know, he says, that we've rebelled and have denied the Lord. We've turned our backs on our God. We know how unfair and oppressive we have been, carefully planning our deceitful lies. And what happens is that as a brokenness on the inside manifests into the grander scope of society and culture at large, then we get this lack of justice. And he goes on, he says, our courts oppose the righteous. It's fascinating that right now, many of the cultural battles that are being fought are being fought in courts, and everybody's angry because they feel like the court didn't give justice. Our courts oppose the righteous, and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets, and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. Now, it's fascinating to me that, that as God looks at our plight, this is the, the beautiful thing about God. God doesn't look, and it might sound like he's saying in this passage, and what I'm saying to you is, oh, it's your own dang fault. You made this bed. Now you got to lie in it. But that's actually not what God's saying. He's saying the, the reason is that you have this heart cry for justice. And you're praying and you're saying, God, do you even hear? And he says, yes, I hear. God, do you even have the strength to actually step in and save us? And God says, yes, I have the strength. But what's separating you and what's causing this is this issue of sin. Many times in our society, we try to deal with the, the branches of the tree when what really needs to get dealt with is the root of the tree. And the root of the tree, the root of this in, un, injustice and the root of this anxiety and this lack of peace and this lack of justice is, is sin and this disconnection from God. 
God looks down and he doesn't say, man, they made this bed, they can line it. He's displeased because his heart cry is for things to be made right as he originally intended. When God created the, the universe and when he established Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them purpose and he gave them sovereignty, he said, tend and keep the garden. This, this realm, this planet was our realm to, to, to manage like God. And we muffed it and we gave over sovereignty to the devil and his created this problem of evil and unleashed this storm upon the world, God doesn't look at that and go, oh man, they deserve what they get. God is actually displeased by that injustice. He wants to make things right. And this is what it says in verse 16. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. And this, upon this line, hinges the Christian faith. So he himself stepped in. God, looking at our situation, could have just said, okay, shake the etch-a-sketch, start over. You've made a right mess of this. You guys were given a perfect blank slate, this beautiful garden and this world that was brimming with potential. And you could have made something beautiful and you could have made something just and you could have created a civilization and a society that was, that was good to all where no one went without and everyone had justice. But instead, you turned it into hell. So shake the etch-a-sketch wipe it clean and start over. But God actually said, who's going to step up? Who's going to intervene? And Isaiah, speaking prophetically into the future of the work of Jesus at the cross, says God himself stepped in to the mess. So he himself stepped in to save with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. The reason I went through all this whole passage is because I wanted to paint this picture of the situation that we find ourselves in, which is our hearts cry for justice, but without an admission that it is our sin at the root of the problem and that we need a savior, we will never see the branches of the tree reflect justice until the root system is dealt with. And that's where Christianity comes and speaks to. It's interesting to me that in our day and age, Christianity is often seen as an irrelevant answer to the relevant questions of the age, when in fact it is the most relevant answer because it deals not so much with the symptoms, but rather with the source. Oftentimes where we get in trouble as Christians is that we start to fight against other people or we start to fight against isms and ideologies and we try to tell, no, no, your beliefs are wrong or whatever, and we neglect to understand the root of our faith is simply this, that there is a good God who looked down upon a broken world and sent himself to solve the problem and that that original problem of sin and that problem at the center of all of our hearts is what is creating the mess around us. That's what God wants to deal with on an individual level so that he can bring about societal change and transformation in the world. That's why as a church, people have often asked me, well, why don't we do, why don't we do this rally with this you know, conservative group? And I'll say, well, because we're not a political entity. Well, that you're, you're, if you keep your mouth shut you know, against the stuff that's going on, then you're, you're basically part of the problem. And I say, well, thank you very much. And then somebody will come from the left and they'll say, why don't we get, you know, we need to come against the evil Trump and his evil people and all that. And I'll go, well, hey, we're not a political entity. And they'll be like, well, that's your part of the problem. I'm part of the problem, guys. I really am. <laughs> what I try to tell people when they try to get us all political is I say, look, we're trying to solve the real problems, which is to help people that are broken like you, like me, Meet Jesus, who is the only answer, believing that if Jesus gets a a hold of the hearts of men and women around our society, and specifically in our city, that he can deal with our politics when he sees fit. But we can't fix 
the real issues by solving superficial problems. Thus, we want to know what we believe, why we believe it, how to live it. As we go through this series, we're going to be using the book Basic Christianity by John Stott as kind of a, uh, uh, an outline. And it starts off in the book talking about the right approach. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the right approach to this question. We live in a society that is fraught with injustice, and uh, we want it to be made right, but we don't really have the answer in and of ourselves. We, we know that God is good. We know that he can save. We know that he is listening. So how does this play out? Number one, we know that God has spoken. As we look at the original answer in this prophecy that Isaiah gives, looking forward to Christ, Isaiah answers that question. He says, God isn't deaf. He does hear. When you cry out for justice, when you look around you and you go, we need help, God is not sitting there passively on his throne, like, you know, picking his teeth, like, eh, they made the mess, you know. He actually is listening, and not only is he listening, but he speaks. He has spoken. God is interactive. I don't know what your conception of God is, but we don't just believe in a, in a God that sort of just is. We believe in a God that, it, that is, that is powerful and above and beyond uh, the universe, but he's also eminent. He is with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He speaks. He is interactive. God is not silent. He hasn't just left us alone in that situation of groping blindly and trying to find our way. He has revealed himself and revealed truth to us in some specific ways. Number one, God has revealed himself through general revelation. In Romans chapter 1, Verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. What may be known about God is plain to them, that is, human beings, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. John Stott, in his book, Basic Christianity, I'm going to quote him extensively in just the next, for the next few minutes. He says, We call this God's general revelation because it is made to all people everywhere, or natural revelation because it is in nature. But it is not sufficient. Yes, it reveals his existence and gives us hints of his divine power, glory, and faithfulness. But if we are to come to know God personally, to have our sins forgiven, and to enter into relationship with him, we need something which goes further. We need something which helps us find out how to get to know him for ourselves. God's disclosure of himself needs to include his holiness, his love, and his power to save from sin. So what John Stott is talking about is there's more to the story, but let's look at step one, this general or natural revelation. The idea that's being talked about here in Romans is that throughout history, you could walk out of your cave or walk out of your tent or walk out of your perfectly climate-controlled house with skylights, and you could look around you and you could look at this universe and you could look at this, the stars in the sky and the perfectly uh, oriented uh, mathematical equations of gravity and how the stars are working together and planets and galaxies and all of that down to the micro level uh, inside of the, the human cell and all of the complexity and beauty and wonder of life. And then there's this one thought that normally would occur to you if you're an intellectually honest person, which is, hmm, I wonder who did this. That's all it's saying. That God has revealed himself. When you look at the world around you, throughout history, the common conclusion was this. Not that this was all just time plus slime plus chance and into existence, but rather that the world around us actually bore the fingerprints of a designer. 
Now, that doesn't tell us anything about the nature or the character of this designer. It just tells us somebody started this whole thing up, right? Somebody pulled the, the cord on the lawnmower, and that's why it's running. And so scientists and philosophers back into the earliest times in human history and up through today have tried to answer this fundamental question of metaphysics, which is this. Why is there something rather than nothing? So the writer here, Paul, in Romans is saying, hey, everybody throughout history has walked out of their house, looked around them, and been like, hmm, who did this? And when you do that, when you start asking that question and pulling on that string, you start to realize, well, I couldn't do this. So the being, the he, the she, the it, the whatever, we don't know who this being is, right? But this being is more powerful than me. Ding. This being that did this, uh, the Greek philosophers realized that the, that the first domino that would get pushed in a succession of natural causation had to be outside of that system. In other words, if somebody made everything and they started the whole thing, then they had to be outside of that system. And so even people that had nothing to do with Christianity, nothing to do with anything that we believe today, they came to these conclusions. And that's what Paul is saying, that God has revealed the fact that he exists just by looking at nature. And an intellectually honest person will actually in, uh, intuit that. But as John Stott goes on, he says that's not enough because it's not enough just to know there's a being out there, there's some powerful wizard of Oz behind the curtain. What is he like? Or what, is, what are they like? What, what is this being like? And that's where we go to special or supernatural revelation. John Stott continues, he says, the wonderful truth is that God gives us this as well. We call this a special revelation because it was made to a special people, the nation of Israel, through special messengers, people who identified as prophets or in the Old Testament, or apostles in the New Testament. It is also supernatural because it was given through a process that we call inspiration, and it found its chief expression in Jesus, in who he is and in what he has done. The way in which the Bible explains and describes this revelation is simply to say that God has spoken. Speech is what we ourselves use where we can in order to communicate with one another most straightforwardly. You can tell he's a British writer because I would never use the word straightforwardly in a sentence like that. It is by our words that we let others know what is in our minds. And this is a special lesson for all of us married people. You have to tell your spouse, you know, what's in your mind. You can't just assume they know. Uh, this is even more, I told that joke in a more um, incendiary way in first service and it got laughs, but I wanted to save myself because I'm being recorded on the internet right now. So, uh, <laughs> Since as the, uh, this is even more true of God and his desire to reveal his infinite mind to our finite minds. Since, as the prophet Isaiah put it, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, as much as the heavens are higher than the earth, we can never get to know those thoughts unless he clothed them in words. The way the Bible puts it is that the word of the Lord came to many prophets until at last, at last Jesus Christ came and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And what John Stott is saying here is that God had to communicate with us and speak to us, and he did it in a way that we could understand. So his speaking comes in the form of words, which conveys the, what the mind is thinking. And, and God's mind is infinite and so great, his thoughts are so high, higher than ours, that it, that it required a great work for him to be able to communicate who he really is. And he did that through prophets, and they wrote it down in the Bible and gave us pictures and vignettes of God and what he's like. But, but when he wanted to be the most clear, what he actually did was put himself in human flesh and show up. And in the person of Jesus, we have the full expression of God. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says this to his disciple Thomas. He says, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. 
If you had really known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In the weeks to come, we're going to talk about the absolutely controversial nature of that statement that Jesus made. Because what Jesus is saying is, if you see me, you've seen God. Now, if you said that, we'd have some questions about you and probably be calling the happy wagon, right? To take you to the happy place. Like, because, right? The difference between a narcissist and God is God doesn't think he's a narcissist, right? So, okay. This is a tough crowd. Man, it's... Jesus is essentially claiming equality with God. You've seen me, you've seen God. So it's a, it's a very bold statement. But what he's telling his disciple here is, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the picture. I'm the revelation of God. If you want to know what God's like, look at me. Because I'm God, right? I'm, I'm the representation. And so God has spoken to us both through general revelation, but also through special or supernatural revelation revealed in the Word, in the Bible, and, and most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. This is interesting to me because what, what Christians will often do in our day and age is they'll try to appeal to a standard of, like, love. Well, you know, I, I, I know the Bible says this, but, like, it feels unloving, so I'm going to change my sort of, you know, posture because it seems unloving, and, and it becomes a subjective standard of love. But the revelation of God, yes, God is love, but that has to be defined through the filter and lens of who Jesus is. And if you can't accept the scripture about who Jesus is, then you don't know who Jesus is, and therefore you have no high ground by which to judge, make any moral judgments. And this is, again, why we go through this stuff, because it's so important. As Christians, it's more important, it's essential that you know who Jesus is, what he said, how he represented himself, and what his claims are, and what he claims and demands of us. But number one, God has spoken. He's spoken through creation and he's spoken through his son. He has spoken to us. Number two, he's taken action. John goes, Stott goes on, the Christian good news is not simply a declaration that God has said something. It also affirms that God has done something. God has taken initiative in both these ways because this is what we need. It isn't just that we are ignorant, but also that we are sinful. In other words, we don't just have a, an academic problem. We have a problem inside of us. It's not just that we needed answers, needed answers to the test. Even if we had all the answers, we still fail the test. This is why it isn't enough for God simply to reveal himself to us and dispel our ignorance. He must also take action to save us from our sins. Paul tells his disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 19 said, for the son of man, speaking of himself, came to seek and save the lost. So our God, not only is he not deaf, not only is he actually listening, but he spoke to us, he revealed himself, but he also stepped into our mess and he took action. In sending Jesus, he made himself a principal player in the grand drama of human history. In stepping into our mess, he showed not just that he is a God who is transcendent and powerful and above it all, who could have just etch-a-sketched us away. But we actually were able to in, uh, intuit now that his character is also gracious and merciful and compassionate. The fact that God stepped into our story in the person of Jesus is significant. It's not just some story lost in history. It's significant to the Christian faith. It's significant to the world. And it's significant to you and I. 
because it means that the kind of God, the character of God that we are talking about is not some God who's aloof and just wants to judge everything and roast everything, but actually has a heart and cares about you and cares about your plight in the world around us. God has taken action. God has spoken. God has taken action. And that leads us to our third and final point, our response. What are we going to do about it? His thought goes on. He says, God has spoken. God has taken action. The record and interpretation of these divine words and deeds is to be found in the Bible. The problem for many people is that this is where they remain because it's all too easy to imagine that what God has said and done is all in the past and just leave it at that. But it needs to come out of history into experience, out of the Bible, into life. God has spoken, but have we listened to his word? God has acted, but have we benefited from what he has done? It's fascinating to me because Christianity stands alone amongst the the plethora of, of options of world religions and isms and ideologies and spiritualities and everything that you could pick. Even somebody saying, I'm just going to have nothing. I'm just going to be agnostic or atheistic. Uh, the Christian faith stands alone because at the center of the Christian faith is not just a narrative or just a worldview, but it is an individual who is active in the story and who also demands that you respond to the claims and the, and the challenges that he brings to the table. C.S. Lewis poses this argument. It's famous. It's called the trilemma. He says the, the kind of person that said the things that Jesus said, he can't just be a great moral teacher. He can't just be a prophet. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's Lord. But he has not left this option of just impartiality or I just neutrality. He hasn't left that open to us. The question is how we, will we respond to God's revelation that he has spoken, that he has taken action, and that the person of Jesus stands before us and says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. How will you respond to Jesus? You can hide from this challenge. You can try to escape it. But ultimately, you live in a world in which even your own heart tells you is unjust, which reflects a standard that is there. We know that we need help. Will we just try to ignore this problem? Will we try to medicate this problem away? Will we try to self-help or self-care this problem away? Or will we face it front on with boldness and, and, and courage and say, I want to know who Jesus is. If he's real, then I want to know him. If he's true, then I want to know him. If he can save me, then I want him to do it. And what does he demand of me in that transaction? And so our challenge is that our, what we are to do in our response is to seek, to be earnest in our seeking of God. In his book, John Stott goes through four categories. I'm going to go through them very, very quickly. Number one, we must seek him seriously. If there is a God, and if his son Jesus did come down to this planet to save us from our sins, this is the most important question to get answered for yourself. Don't let yourself be distracted away from answering this question. Seek him seriously. Study Read words. Read, read the books you need to read. Ask the questions you need to ask. Hebrews eleven six says, God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Number two, we must seek him humbly. We must admit that we are not God. We must admit the limited and finite nature of our minds. In other words, I don't have all the information and I probably never will. I am limited. I am finite in my ability to think. I am rational, but I'm a limited being. So I need to depend upon God, if he's real, to meet me where he can meet me, to, 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 to reveal himself to me. And it can be said simply like this, just be teachable, just be humble, just be teachable. If God is real, if his word is truth, just be open and teachable, be humble. 
Number three, we need to seek him honestly. With that humility, we need to pair intellectual honesty, an open and receiving mind, not dominated with preconceived notions or presuppositions or shut doors in our life that we will never open because that will stop you from actually seeing him. There needs to be an honest seeking. And number four, and I think most importantly, that we would seek him obediently, which means being prepared to take action as the truth is revealed. And the question is this, what will you do with this man, Jesus? What will you do with his claims? And we're going to examine them over the next few weeks. But it's important for us to understand today, number one, God has spoken. Number two, he's taken action. And three, it's our response, our responsibility to seek him seriously, honestly, humbly, and obediently. Amen? Go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes this morning. Right now, I just want to make an opportunity. We kind of went a little bit to the deep end of the pool today uh, in Sunday school, but hey, I told you we were, so. But I want to make an opportunity for anybody that's here that wants to put their faith and trust in Jesus as the start of a journey of following him. If you're here today and you would like to put your faith and trust in Jesus, it's absolutely the best decision you can make. He is the hope. He is the answer. He is life. We're going to be pursuing this and, and looking into these claims and these questions over the next few weeks. It's going to be awesome. But if that's you today and you go, you know what, Jake, I'm, I'm ready to like, I want in. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want him to save me from my sin. And I want to, I want to take him as my Lord and follow him, be his disciple. Then I want to invite you to make that decision today. Would you just raise your hand so I can see? And I just want to pray with you. And you can do this online if you're watching along with us or even on a replay. Is there anyone here today that says, Pastor Jake, I want to put my faith and trust in Christ. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Let's all pray this prayer together. And if you raise your hand or if you're making this decision today, just pray this with me. And we're all going to pray together. Dear Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you and in you alone. I confess my sin. I have not lived up to your standard, but I thank you for your grace and mercy revealed to me at the cross where you gave your life for me and made a way for me to be right with you. I give you my life and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.